We've been in our alignment series, and today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have a bit of a panel discussion on mental health. It's been Mental Health Awareness Week, the week that's just been, and so we're going to finish that off uh, with a discussion today. But before we invite our panelists up, I do want to just share a couple of thoughts. Um, These are not in your notes, but follow along and write down notes in your phone if you'd like to. Matthew chapter 9, verse 12 to 13 says, when Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, for I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. This is an important verse because it gives us a first-hand account that Jesus supports doctors, right? He's saying, if you're healthy, you don't need a doctor, like as you were. But if you're not healthy, you should probably go see a doctor. We see his support of that in this. And he uses that imagery to help those that are listening to understand that if you lived a perfect and sinless life, you wouldn't need a savior. But because we have all sinned, we do need a savior and Jesus is it. You know, I think for far too long, society, and unfortunately, I think especially Christians, have not known how to reconcile the very real mental health struggles that people go through and the promises of the Bible. They've struggled to believe that as Christians, we can be made whole, healed, set free, forgiven, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, we can struggle with thoughts around worth, value, motivation, assurance, and peace. Now, I think we've come a long way, which is really assuring to see. You know, we usually don't consider there to be a conflict when a believer gets the flu. We acknowledge that it's true. We can see the symptoms. There they are. That person likely goes to the doctor, gets a diagnosis, might get some medication, and then journey on a road to recovery. And I think it's refreshing for us to acknowledge that Christians can struggle with mental health challenges, conditions, and illnesses, and be just as much of a Christian and just as much of a person. Their salvation is not dependent on it but it can have a big, effect, a big effect on our quality of life. And I need you to know this morning that God cares about our quality of life. I say it's refreshing. You might've thought that was an odd way to put that, Frosty. Why would you say it's refreshing to hear that? What I mean by that, it's, it's refreshing to be able to pull down the invisible and unrealistic barriers that Christians won't journey through those challenges because then it creates a divide and we're not quite sure how to reconcile it. Psalm 37, verse 23 to 24 says, The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. You know that the godly sometimes stumble, and it's okay. God's heart is that we would allow him to strengthen us and support us so that we could one day stand again. Now, the Bible has several examples of godly people that struggled with their mental health. And the solution and the tools offered in those scenarios were sometimes supernatural, rely on the supernatural work of God, and they were sometimes real practical steps that could help. I think it's important that we rely on both of those. I mean, take Elijah, for example. This is a prophet of God that unfortunately had some suicidal thoughts. Like this guy's literally a mouthpiece for God to a generation and a society. He's getting these messages from God. He's delivering them. They're bringing hope, correction, guidance. And yet even he struggles. We read in uh, 1 Kings 19 verse 3 to 4. It says, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Bathsheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Now, God did not take Elijah's life, but rather he gave him strength to continue on. Elijah, quite interestingly, is instructed to have a nap and a meal, and then he gets up and he has strength to continue. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Bible's response to suicidal thoughts is just to have a nap and a meal, right? 
But good nutrition and sleep are often a very good first step. But Elijah, who is a prophet of God, is struggling with this. And this is the most key thing, I think, is that God didn't turn from him. God didn't turn his back on Elijah, but rather he drew near and he gave him the strength to continue on. And I think that's really significant. When we are weak, it is possible for us to get strong again. That can be hard to believe when we're feeling weak, but it very much is true. You know, anxiety is another big one. And the Bible does actually speak directly to anxiety. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter is writing to believers in this letter, and he recognizes that we all feel anxious from time to time. And I love the encouragement to cast all of our anxiety on the Lord, to cast it all on him, to submit our worries to him. Do you know that God is not afraid of, put off by, or unsure on how to deal with you in moments when you feel anxious? I mean, even Jesus said, right, he says, come to me all who are weary and burdened. Not all who are top of the world and feeling great although you certainly can come to Jesus too. He says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and his promise is that he would give you rest. Now, sometimes the things we worry about in life that cause anxiety in our heart and in our mind can have a negative effect on our body and our mind. I mean, think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's preparing himself to be arrested and crucified. He knows it's coming, and it says that he felt deep anguish to the point of death. This is Jesus himself feeling this way. Now, with all of that said, I need you to know that God's heart is that we would heal from mental illness, that we would gather the strength that we need, both from God and from professionals, and that we would take some practical steps towards wholeness. And so that's what we want to focus in on a little bit more this morning on the practical steps to wholeness. And so we have amazing people that are going to join me on the panel now. So without further ado, I'm going to invite them up and introduce them to you. Firstly, we have Dr. Brendan Ash. Brendan, you can come and join us. Good to have you with us. You can welcome him. Many of you might recognize Brendan, him and his family, very much part of our Papakura family. They led one of our dream teams, did a phenomenal job, but that whole time they actually live very close to our Botany campus. Um, so now they're based there, but always good to have you back, Brendan. Um, Brendan is a GP at Crawford Medical Center in Howick, um, full-time legend. Okay, next we have Yvette Britton. Yvette, do you want to come and join us? Let's welcome Yvette Britton. Yvette works as the lead counsellor at Elam Christian College. She not only sees students herself, but she oversees other counsellors um, and professionals that deal with students at our school and currently studying in her master's as well. So she's super smart. Thirdly, certainly not least, is our one and only Ellie Griffiths. Come and join us, Ellie. Ellie is a first-year intern with us here at Elam Christian Center Papakura through Elam Leadership College. She does youth work and also women's ministry. And she just recently, like a week, maybe two weeks ago, graduated with a, I said, is it diploma? In counseling. Is that the name of your thing? Amazing. She's a professional. She has just graduated as a counselor and does youth work. She is phenomenal. Awesome. One more time, put our hands together and welcome our panelists. Cool. This discussion was, I, I found it really valuable, even from the position I was sitting in the first service. And we're sort of going to try and go through that again today. And our hope and our heart is that there is some gold, there is some practical tools, some help for every person in the room. But kind of the way, and because of the panelists that we have, there's going to be things for adults in there as well. But also we want to spend some time speaking to young people and parents of young people. It can be so hard to navigate how to 
deal with and lead and guide our children through challenging times. Now, mental health issues are not just for young people. We know that full well, um, but we're going to journey through some of that as well, which would be cool. So let's just kick right into it. Brendan, we're going to start with you if we could. Um, There's a whole bunch of different mental health conditions and illnesses. We know that, but anxiety seems to be one of the most common ones. Medically speaking, what's going on in the body when people are feeling really anxious? And how do health professionals measure this? When someone comes in, how do you come to a diagnosis that they perhaps may have some form of clinical anxiety? Well, first of all, um, I have anxiety myself. I've got it right now. And uh, so I'm I'm not comfortable up here. So uh, I'm just the same as everyone else. And um, secondly, I want to point out that I really like this new carpet because uh, it's been a while since I've been here and the old carpet triggered me, you know, it was pretty bad. (laughs) Um, So back to um, anxiety, as you say, it's very common, and to be honest, we all have it, and it's put in our hearts for a reason. God created us to have some anxiety, so we fear things that are dangerous. Um, and even my daughter did a speech on anxiety for school, and she won. <laughs> that was an A. Um, but if you can imagine, you know, you, you're looking over at the edge of a tall building, you feel fear because you don't want to fall off. Uh, or there's a big dog with big teeth and snarling at you, you feel fear because it's a dangerous creature. So anxiety is a good thing, but it's when it becomes overwhelming and, and crippling and you can't function, we've got a big problem. So it's a normal feeling and too much of it. And say with depression, I mean, I, I feel sad. We all feel sad sometimes, but... Um, it's when it becomes too much that it's depression and that needs help. Um, so your question was how do we diagnose it and what's going on? Um, so there's two ways. Um, sometimes people, they just tell, you know, as a GP, people just tell you about their emotions and what's going on in their head and it's quite obvious and you even feel it in your own heart. You feel a feeling of darkness and depression when someone's depressed who you're talking to. Um, so you, 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 you guide, you monitor your own feelings. Um, if someone's very anxious and on edge, you find yourself getting anxious and on edge as well. So um, that's quite easy to read. Um, and the other thing is we do have some objective scoring tests. Like we can ask seven questions about anxiety. How often over the last two weeks have you felt any of the following symptoms? Is it never? Is it sometimes? Is it most days? Or is it pretty much every day. So you get a little score at the end of that. So there are objective ways to measure that. And we can rescore that every time uh, we, we recheck somebody and go, oh, your score's dropping down. This is good. You were scoring 12. Now you're scoring six or something like that. So, yeah. Awesome. Now, in the last service, you mentioned how sometimes patients come to you and the anxiety that they face is, is seemingly logical. They can make sense. Their world's sort of falling apart. And for others, that's not the case. Do you want to maybe speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So... Um, Some people have a real anxiety which is crippling and it's serious and it's real. You know, there's no doubt about that. And and I asked, I say, what's happening, you know, at work? And oh, work's fine. And and your your relationships, oh, that's all good. And the kids and finances, everything's okay. But there's just a real anxiety thing going on. And um, those people, they do respond well to medications, which we'll touch on later. Um, Other people... Um, they're just in a terrible situation in life and, you know, they lost their job, they're going to lose their car, their house, whatever, and their marriage is on the rocks and everything is going bad. And, of course, that's a situational um, anxiety or depression. Um, and so, um, and sometimes there's an overlap of both. Some poor people have really complex lives going on. So, um, yeah, there is the, the two and often there's a bit of a combination. 
Uh, at your practice, obviously you only represent one practice, but how often are you seeing people come in with mental health struggles that they then go and diagnose, or some have medication, some don't? You said, like you said, we'll touch on that later. But how common is that, and what sort of mental health conditions are being presented as you're seeing it? Right, so the most, most common ones are depression and anxiety, and it really is, for general practice, it is our bread and butter. It is really common, and if we're not dealing with it as a, uh, a first impression, we're dealing with it as an ongoing um, managing, you know, month by month, year by year. Um, so it is very common. Um, so I can guarantee your general practitioner will have seen it and managed it on the day that you see them. It's very common. So don't feel like your general practitioner can't manage what's going on. Um, yeah, it is normal. Yeah, thanks, Brendan. It's amazing, eh? Because, well, that's certainly bad news, that, that so many people would come to you with these challenges. In one sense, it's reassuring. I think oftentimes when we're struggling with these sorts of things, we think, no one understands, no one gets me, I'm in isolation. There's no point in talking to anyone, they won't understand. But actually what you're saying is it's very common and you're well-trained in how to deal with it. So the invitation there is to go seek the help that you need. That's awesome. Okay, Yvette, we're going to flick over to you if we can. Um, I remember from my time in youth ministry, which is a few years ago, um, it seemed like these mental health conditions and challenges, especially around anxiety and depression among young people, was a growing concern. With every passing year, it seems to be more prevalent. Um, I'm wondering, you working with students all the time in school, they come and see you, they come and see the other counsellors. What are you observing at Elam Christian College in terms of, I guess, a similar question to Brendan's, but what are you noticing on the ground there at school? Um, in, in, in terms of what's presenting, um, what people come to counselling for, um, that would be, yes, a lot of them are coming for anxiety struggles, um, low mood, um, feeling depressed, sometimes struggling with suicidal thoughts or sometimes distress intolerance and managing that through um, self-harming sometimes, um, eating disorders. Um, and a lot of these things we would deal with in, only in counselling. A lot of them we need to you know, refer to GPs, for example, or specialists. But that, that's what they come with, um, stress. And just in mentioning low mood, I think COVID has had an, has had an impact. I think people are um, perhaps that sense of what is routine, what is normal, um, everyday stuff, it just seems to be that much harder. Um, so I think that has had an impact in, on the increase. And did you ask about, has it increased over the years? Is that, was that the question now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think in the last, I'd say, eight to ten years, it's definitely, we've, we've got a lot more people coming in to see school counsellors um, than before. And part of that, I think, is a, a good thing, that they're not s silently struggling alone and kind of just sucking it up and freaking out on their own but actually seeking help. And that, I think that a lot of that is because awareness has been raised, which is a good thing, that they know you can seek help. You know, you can just check in. Maybe it's not something serious, but have a conversation. Um, so I think that culture is helpful. Um, th and there is, I think, another aspect of why that has sometimes... I, I believe why that's increased is a huge shift towards, you know, everyone being connected all the time. And I think that does put a lot of pressure on young people particularly just having your minds kind of frenetically busy all the time connected. Am I going to miss out? Am I going to um, not hear about something that's going on? Um, I think that creates a lot of press, pressure and stress um, as well as all the things coming their way like um, the perfect life 
presented on Instagram or um, on social media and along with the challenges of pornography and targeting young people. Um, yeah, so there's a whole lot of reasons that I think... And particularly those things impact on, in, in my experience, one, one factor which is quite huge, and that is sleep. So sleep is just like this huge battle. So it's often one of the starter questions, you know, how's, how, how's your sleep? You know, and that can unpack a whole lot of stuff. So I think that sleep is a hugely protective factor for mental well-being. And puts, you know, sleeping affected puts people at risk for anxiety and depression. Um, so that's, that's kind of a hinge point that I think has really changed over the last few years. Yeah, amazing. It's, it's great to see that the environment is changing and that people are feeling more comfortable coming forward for help. Um, Brendan, I guess just touching base on that, do you feel like as, as a GP or as a doctor, um, you guys are better at identifying it or is, is there just more of it or is it a bit of both? I think um, there is. There seems to be more of it, and I think back, you know, the COVID times was was a terrible time where um, we were people were cut off, they were isolated, they were left to, you know, watching their devices and getting too much overdose of unhealthy stuff from Netflix and algorithms, and um, I, I think that certainly was a big thing. But it's definitely, people are more open to talk about it now. It's not such a stigma, which is really good. And what Mike King is doing and stuff, just that awareness, and it's okay to talk about it. He's admitting he's had his issues, and I think certainly people are talking about it more, so both, I think. Awesome, thank you. Okay, Ali, you have done a placement throughout the course of your studies at Ardmore School down the road and also at Elam Christian College, and you serve in our youth ministry every Friday night. Now, you could sort of come at that from two capacities, right? When you're in the schools, you're a counsellor in there, and when you're a youth leader, you counsel, but not in a professional capacity. And so sometimes students might open up to you in a different way. What is it that you're seeing, both in our schools and in our youth ministry? What are the prevalent, I guess, challenges that young people are, are facing in our community? Yeah, I think similar to what Yvette said, like, anxiety is a huge one. Um, also, like, low mood, like, depression, that sort of thing. But I think a huge part of it is also just around identity. I think the teenage years is quite the formative years where teenagers are asking the hard questions, figuring out who they want to be, what's important to them. Um, and so I think part of that definitely plays into it. Um, and especially when it comes to, I think, as humans, we all kind of want to put ourselves and others in boxes to understand our lives. And so um, I think there is this really interesting trend um, in the last probably few years where um, teenagers seem to be taking on labels where they have experiences of, for example, anxiety, which is a really normal experience like Brendan was sharing. Like that's what motivates us when you've got an interview to prepare well, or when you've got an exam to study, like it's actually a really important part of life. But then when they begin to take on these labels and they're like, oh, I'm really anxious, that kind of then is the lens that they look at their life through. So then they feel nervous about something and then work themselves up into this quite panicked state. Um, so yeah, I definitely think that's a really interesting thing that I've seen quite a bit of as well is just this like labeling and it becomes part of who they are and then their responses to the world. And then it's really hard to step out of that and to function well without this kind of like constant lens of like, this is who I am, this is how I respond to situations and understand the world around me. Yeah, and, and we were chatting earlier in the week and we spoke about how for a lot of the time for young people, and, and not just young people, adults as well, we can feel anxious, and that can be different from having an anxiety condition. But for young people that are still trying to process the world and figure it all out, how do they navigate figuring out the difference? And how should parents help their young people sort of figure that out? I think that, 
like one thing that I hear a lot from teenagers is they just like want to feel heard by their parents. Um, I think it's really hard for like as an adult to remember that your kids or teenagers around you don't have the emotional intelligence or self-regulation that adults do. And so I think kind of like creating space for those conversations of being able to hear them out and understand their experience and not that you agree with what their viewpoint is on something necessarily but just validating where they're at um, and opening up the lines of communication starting to have those conversations and um, kind of walk that journey with them where often they feel like they can't talk to parents because they're just worried about being lectured and being told what to do which is not really what any teenager seems to want they want to have a bit of independence so yeah I think that's a big part of it yeah cool now listening's a huge part of that right as a parent which if you're a parent I mean we only have a little boy we haven't got to that point yet but I've uh, parented half your kids when they were teenagers <laughs> not really but you know what I mean um one of the hardest parts is listening when you're convinced you know the answer but yet your parents, the children don't want to be told what to do. How do, we ne- how do we listen well in a way that helps guide our young people to the right conclusions? Yeah, I think it's like, I mean, it's like seek first to understand then to be understood, right? So if you can take the time to like really get their experience and like it doesn't have to make sense to you, but it's the world that they live in and it's their experience of the world. We all have very different experiences of the world around us. And so taking the time to um, just really listen and, and ask questions not for the purpose of this is what I want to tell you, but just like I really want to understand where you're coming from. Um, And I think also like empowering them to take some steps towards doing something about it. So being like, okay, well, what do you think we should do about it? Like I know for me as a teenager, those were like the best conversations that I had with my parents. It was then they were like, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? And I was like, oh, I actually like have a say in it. Like actually I have a valid point of view. And so I also found that in those situations that made me then – once I felt heard, I was like, okay, well, mum, what do you think that I should do about this, dad? What do you reckon is the best way to go forward? And so I think that it's kind of the both end. It's like learn, like listening to them first and validating their idea of what comes next. But also like as a parent, obviously you have a pretty clear idea of what they should do and know a lot more about life in the world than them. And so it's that balance of also kind of being able to bring some wisdom and perspective, but also like if they're what they think that they should do is like a tiny step in the journey for where you want to see them eventually, like taking those small wins as well and empowering them because they'll take a lot more responsibility and actually want to do it instead of being like, mum told me I have to go for a walk every day because I have anxiety. Like they're not going to want to do that. Right. But if they come up with themselves, they'll be like, oh yes, I can do this and it's going to make a difference. So I think that's a big part of it. I love that. eh? It's like a small step that they've made is so much more powerful than a big step that you've made them do because they've come to that conclusion. And also, I think that's great advice, not only for parents dealing with their young people, but friends dealing with friends and and colleagues dealing with colleagues. There's this whole idea that we don't need to tell people what to do, but rather listen and validate their opinion. Your dad, who we saw did did the mission update, is phenomenal. Like, I'm not his kid. He's a lead pastor. I'm a lead pastor. So we work alongside each other in that sense. But the amount of times Mike has come to me like, Frosty, what do you reckon we should do about this? And I'm like, if anyone's got the answers, Mike, it's you. Like, why are you asking me what we should do about this? And I don't know if he's just awesome at what he does and, and, and playing that great game with me. But I tell you now, it makes me feel so um, important might not be the right word, but validated. Like, my opinion matters. Like, I actually have a say in where we're going. And while he's not my dad, the same effect takes place. And it's powerful, isn't it, to ask the right questions. So before we move on from you, Ali, to maybe one of the others, what are the right questions to ask? Not only 
to our children, but also to our friends going through a hard time? How can we navigate people towards healthy outcomes that they've come up with by asking the right questions? Um, I think, like, it all starts with just, like, asking questions to understand and not kind of, like, going in this direction of, like, this is where I want you and I'm going to very strategically, like, a lot of the time teenagers see straight through that. And so as long as you're, like, coming from the genuine place of, like, um, like a vet said, like, understanding where they're coming from um, and validating that without necessarily agreeing with it. You can have a conversation where you're like, okay, how are we going to get you to school without being like, you have to go to school and you don't have a say in it, being like having a conversation about it. Um, so I think that's definitely a real big part of it. Um, and then I had something else, but I forgot. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, we had a chat throughout the week and you mentioned things like, it's the value of reflecting back to them. So someone's speaking to you. you so, so what I'm hearing is, a, B, C, is that right? Yes, that's right. When we do that, they feel understood. They feel heard. They feel like this person gets me and actually cares about what I'm going through. One of, the, I think, the most powerful things that you said to me, Ali, um, when we had this chat, was that young people want to believe and know that what they're going through matters to their parents, right? Yeah. And so as parents of young people or as friends dealing with our friends, we have to make sure that we're, we are ensuring that people feel that we actually care about what they're going through. That's awesome. Okay, Yvette, do you, do you have anything to add to what Ali shared there? Um, yeah, as a counsellor, but as, as a parent myself, um, we, we, as parents we often have the urge to fix things and understand why the heck is this happening to my kid, you know? And so there's that urge to seek for answers. And very often when we're like, why are you going through this? Why is this happening? Why are you so depressed? Why are you still in bed? Um, a lot of times the person actually doesn't know. They're just sitting with that low mood, feeling like they're feeling, and they have no idea. And it's probably a collection of a whole lot of factors. It's probably not one single thing. There might have been a tipping point. So uh, maybe a more helpful question might be just to say, you know, I can see you're going through some stuff. How, how, what support do you need from me? How can I support you? And actually asking that with genuine curiosity, because they might think of something you never thought of, and you might be surprised. They might go... I just need some time alone. Okay, I'll come back and check in on you. They might say, can we just watch a movie and not talk about it, please? Okay, because they just need to be with you, but not chat. Um, they, might, they might say, actually, I actually think I need to see a counsellor. Can you organise that? So we never know what they might say, and then they are saying what, what support they might need. Um, so I think that's helpful. Um, the, the other part that has gone from my mind. <laughs> That's right. I'll, I'll, oh, yeah. It was, yeah. It was about just, uh, I think Ellie has said it. Um, we can agree without, um, we, can, we can validate their feelings without agreeing with them. So I, and it's important that we empathize and just show that we actually get that this really is a struggle. I can see that you are really struggling to get out of bed. That must be actually quite tough right now. Um, how are we going to get you to school? So they might not want to go, but we need to find ways to help them towards that. Um, and sometimes having a little bit of flex in, in that journey, yeah. I think that's really powerful for us to understand that we can affirm and validate somebody's feelings without agreeing with them. Because in the past, I know in my younger years of leadership, young person would come to me with a struggle and I'm like, there's nothing about that that I agree with. And so I don't really, in the past, haven't known how to navigate that because I don't want to have them believe that I'm affirming it and that they should continue down that path. And so oftentimes we say nothing or we avoid it and it can be tricky. And as parents, we can enter into that with them. We can validate their feelings. But 
not at the same time agree with the direction that they're going. So that's that's really reassuring. Um, it, it seems like not only is are these struggles being more widely experienced, but sometimes more severe as well. I mean, remember when I was a young person, this just it probably was there far more than we knew because we weren't talking about it as much, but I think there was less of it as well. What do you think is the underlying cause of this increase? You say over the last eight to ten years, there has been a, a big increase in this stuff. What do you think's causing all of that? Um, this isn't fully well researched and everything, but I have spoken about the sort of impact of technology. And I do also believe that technology can be helpful and there's a lot of apps that can be great and connecting is good. Um, so I do think that that has had a huge impact. Um, but there's an additional thing, like almost like a philosophy of the ways that we understand the world. And, and I think that the predominant view among especially young people now is my truth is my feelings. What I feel is my truth. And if you feel what you feel and you believe what you believe, then who am I to tell you any differently? And I think there's a beautiful paradox there because it's quite appealing because I can believe what I believe and you believe what you believe and I can feel this and it's, it's very inclusive and accepting, but it also can be unhinging in some way and cause a bit of angst. Like if I don't have an anchor, then I'm tossed by the waves. Um, but if I have an anchor and I know that there's some truth that's external to me, that can be quite powerful. Um, we don't have, as Christians, we don't have this kind of loose, wafty hope about what might be, you know, I hope you're going to get through this. It's not that kind of hope. It's a sure, solid hope that there's a future, there's a, there's a person, there's a God that loves you. And that, that's unconditional. That's not something sort of vague. Um, so there's that groundedness, that anchor that I think to hold on to, which I think is really important in the conversation. So Amazing. Thank you, Yvette. All right, Brendan, we're going to come back to you. We've got a few minutes left. I know for many people there can be a huge stigma around mental health, and it's so great to see the progress that we've made so far. But I think particularly when it comes to medication, um, medication for people to journey out of the challenge or perhaps just manage the challenge that they're in long term. Some might jump to conclusions and think, well, the problem with medication is you might end up being on it for your whole life, and that's a problem, or it's the start of a slippery slope. You become dependent on it. What have you observed uh, in your practice, for those that have gone on medication, um, is, it, is it good? Is it bad? It sounds like earlier it is something that you would suggest. Do you want to just speak to medication and maybe put some truth to it this morning? Yeah, sure. Uh, there's quite a few questions there. I'll try and remember them to answer them all. But um, first of all, no, it's not a slippery slope. If you were to start some medication for anxiety or depression, uh, it doesn't mean that you become weaker and that you need that and that you're... Um, you're addicted to it or anything like that. Um, so there are um, some older medications that were used a lot um, back in the 70s and 80s called benzodiazepines. You've probably heard of those, Valium, Halcyon. Um, those we hardly ever use because those ones are addictive. So if you were prescribed something, it wouldn't be one of those. I could almost guarantee. Um, so you probably would get something called an SSRI and don't sweat how it works, but it's to do with serotonin levels in the brain. And um, But what it does is it's not a happy pill. It doesn't like suddenly put a smile on your face. It doesn't work like that, but it does help to level out your extremes, up, ups and downs. Um, so what I've found with some people is um, some people come back 
every three months an ED prescription for their fluoxetine or citalopram, and you might have heard those words. Um, and and I and I say to them, look, you've been on this for years. You know how are things going, and they say everything's right, and our work's going well, and the family's going going good, and finances are okay, and everything's going well. And 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 I say, okay, well, you've been on this for a while. Have you thought about coming off it? And um, sometimes they say, um, I, I tried that. I did try that, and I went into a really bad place again, and I don't want to go back there. And so um, I, then I say to them, okay, well. That clinches that you need to stay on it, um, but be reassured that it is safe to be on this for years, decades. It won't do you any harm. You're in a better space. Just stay on it. That's fine. Um, and it's not because they are weaker. It's because they just went back to the original state, which is not so good. Now, there's other people, and this might be more common, um, and they, they come and see me, and they're in a terrible situation, and they... Uh, it might be because the world has fallen apart. Everything's going wrong, and um, and we have a good old talk. And I offer them a prescription, saying this this might help, and take it every day. Blah blah blah. And uh, and sometimes they don't even end up taking it because they come out feeling a whole lot better. They've talked about it. Uh, they realise the situation is not quite that bad, and they can manage it. And they don't even take it, and that's good. That's okay. Other times, people start to take it, and they feel a little bit. Um, uh, nausea or agitation or some side effect and they go, oh, I don't really like this and I think I'm okay without it and, um, you know, we like to be, like to know if people have stopping the medication but um, but that's okay if they gave it a try and it didn't work and they stopped it um, or sometimes the situation changes and three months passes, six months and actually um, marriage is good, got my job back, everything's fine again and, and they're okay and that's good too. So th we, there's a whole range of situations and outcomes and um, it's, it's not a, a simple... Um, one box. I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I, th I think, again, that's reassuring, right, because it's a catered approach. And what you're not yeah. saying is medication should be for everyone. And so it's good for some and not for others, but it really just depends on how you respond and every person's different. Yeah. You know, I think, like, when, when I think when I was much younger and I thought that people that went on medication for these reasons is just because the doctors didn't know what else to do, so they just chucked medication at them. It's very much not the case. And I was ill-informed back then as well, yeah, yeah. certainly I've come a long way, but you, you've got professionals developing these amazing medications that actually help people. It's not addictive long-term. There's no negative side effects long-term. So that's, that's yeah. great. So I guess the encouragement here and the invitation is if you're struggling, it may be great for your season. It may not be, but go and speak to a professional that can help you with all of that stuff. Yeah, and also um, medication is just one facet. We've got um, counselling. Um, also, I encourage people to have you know good connections with people and talk about their stuff. And um, all these things are important. And self-help, the websites that you're going to put up in a minute, um, and and talking to yourself and saying I can do this, and um, or God is greater than this, and um, and and just all these things that just remind us. And you may have to do that several times a day, um, but all these things they do, all do work. Awesome. Yvette, you work in a, in a Christian college. I don't know how the college became a Christian, but um, assumedly a lot of the students in it have a faith journey. Not every single one of them, we know that. And so a lot of the students that are coming to see you and the other counselors that you work with probably wrestle with this whole idea of I'm a person of faith, I believe I'm whole, I'm healed, I'm set free. And, but then I also have these challenging thoughts and emotions and everything going on. And how do they reconcile that? Is there a struggle battle between the two and what advice do you give to people that are dealing with with that battle um 
I think just a reflection is that I've noticed that the younger generation doesn't struggle with that as much as the older generation, as their par as parents perhaps. But I think there is still that sense of like, I should be an overcomer, I should have joy, but I'm actually just don't even feel like getting out of bed. Or, you know, I'm super anxious and I'm meant to cast my, all my burdens onto Jesus. And But I, did I do that? And what happened? You know, and so there's that little bit of that tension that happens in their faith. And I think it's because we, you know, as, you, as you've already said, you know, if I had diabetes, I'd take my insulin, I'd pray for healing, I would, um, you know, probably institute some sort of healthy practices in my, uh, you know, exercise and diet and so on, and all of that. So I would do it, all of those, and, 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 not or. And I think it's, in our faith, it's not about the and and not about, and the or, it's not medication or prayer or counseling. It's exploring all of those options and seeing what God has given through people and directly to us to help us through stuff. Um, with the guilt, because the mental health issues rather than physical health issues happen in that thought space, we can get really down on ourselves because it actually affects how we are thinking. So it's that much harder to come up with those solutions. Um, so with that guilt, it's, I think it's about being not judging yourself and, and knowing that... Um, Having compassion on yourself is, is a first step. Just like you'd have compassion on a friend. If Ellie was going through a struggle, I'd be like, oh, Ellie, you know, how are you doing? You know, you're doing okay. Can I pray for you? You'd be kind to, I'd be kind to her, all of that. But when it comes to being that to ourselves, we tend to be a lot more judgmental. Um, and I think it's about shifting what overcoming or being joyful um, or having peace even looks like. So being joyful if you're really low might just, it might just mean smiling at the person who's just brought, you know, you've just brought your takeaways from, just mustering up a smile. That might be joy. Um, overcoming might be just showing up at work on time in basically the right gear. You know, that might be overcoming. And so changing that dial and setting yourself, being kind to yourself in that regard, I think can help, um, yeah. That's so good. I love that personalized approach, right? Like what joy looks like for me in my season might be different from someone else in another season and not comparing because we're all at a different point in the, our journey going through different things. I think that's so helpful and relieving to not know that my joy needs to look like somebody else's joy, but that I'm just considering my next step. That's really helpful. Are there any, I know you've got a list of some other practical tools that we might share with people. Um, write these down, but I will be posting all of these tools and websites and things on our Facebook group as well so that you can go afterwards and click the links that you need to. But Yvette's got some. Yeah, I did want to write them down because there's a few things that I pulled out that I thought these are quite specifics that students seem to have found helpful. First, I'll just talk about the general picture is um, if you can think of R-E-D-S, REDS, um, taking care of your mental well-being would be looking at rest. Am I getting enough sleep and am I getting enough breaks? You know, am I just working full tilt through the week and then working at church all Sunday and going in the evenings and so on? Am I getting enough rest breaks? Am I getting good sleep? E for exercise. I, I don't prescribe anything because I'm a counselor, not a, not a doctor. And so, but I say to my students, if I could prescribe something, just one thing, it would be a bit of exercise. And I know from my own life, last two weeks, you could ask my family, I haven't been my best self. And I haven't got on my bicycle once. So there's a little bit of a link there. Um, so just getting out and about. And exercise isn't doing a marathon. Exercise for you might look like wandering down to the beach, sitting there and watching the waves and wandering back. That's what it might look like. So 
E, and then D is for diet, just making sure that you're actually eating food. When I say food, I mean like not all the stuff filled with preservatives and the stuff that just gives us these energy kicks like that, you know, but good solid food. Um, and then S is for social, just staying connected. And that goes on the other side. If you've got a friend who's down and who's low, keep messaging them keep, without bugging them. But keep, you know, go visit them. You know, they might, they might just need a visit, not to talk about their problems even, just to sit and hang out for a bit. So keep, keep on because they might be really struggling to connect. Some of the specific tools, um, there's this app called Breathe. I really think that's helpful. It helps you just look at the screen and breathe in and breathe out and do it slower and slower. And so that can be helpful. There's another one called Sparks. It's a kind of a gamified approach. Don't, don't, young people, like, it's not like a game. I, no claims. It's like one of those games from many years ago. But it is pretty good. And if you're willing to give it a shot, some young people, young guys, have actually found it quite helpful. It's just a bit of a journey that helps you with your thoughts and your feelings. It's called Sparks, S-P-A-R-X. And it's New Zealand-based um, and made. So that also helps with the context. Um, there's sometimes mood tracking on an app. using. There's an app called Dalio, which is quite nice. Um, and then I guess I'll give you one tip for schoolwork. Um, and that is to work to time, not to task. So not to see this huge mountain of an internal assessment that's there, but just to say, I'm going to do 20 minutes on my English personal response, and then I'm going to stop and have a five-minute break, and then I'm going to do another 20 minutes. And just taking that chunk and saying, feeling good about yourself that you actually did work for 20 minutes, even if you worked slowly, that's okay. Um, the language we use, rather than sort of phrasing it like, I, I am I'm depressed, that's a, quite a big statement. Just contain it. Don't let it have more power than it should have. And saying something like, gee, I'm really feeling low or flat tonight, right now. Um, it just contains it a bit more. And, yeah, just a, a thought strategy, which is when it's the storm is going on inside, whether it's lightning or, you know, rain or thunder or darkness, um, to just put under, think of it as outside of yourself instead of inside of yourself. So we're not pretending it's all sunshine and roses and bunnies and lambs. We're saying there is a storm, but it's, it doesn't have to sit right inside. It's just, I'm in it, I can see it, and, and I can proceed through it because I've, I, know, I know where I'm going and I know who I'm, who I'm walking alongside. That's awesome, Yvette. Thank you so much. And I, I think all of that is so valuable, not just to young people. I think those techniques and those strategies are valuable to everyone. The, the working to time. You know, I do that when I'm writing sermons. I can't sit and write for hours, so I just crank out a portion of time, and then I go for a walk and have a cup of tea, and I come back down ready for another session. Cool. Just to finish up, Ellie, um, at home, there might be occasions, in fact, there, there has been or there will be, where there's a blow-up bit of an argument between young people and their parents. How do parents navigate that in a healthy way? There's, there's yelling, there's shouting, no one's getting their message across. The parents know the answer and they just need the young person to, to hear and listen. But what is a good healthy way to approach that? I think the key thing to remember is like, give everyone a breather. Like when you get into a big fight or something's going on and everyone's like high emotions, like rationality is not going to work. Um, especially for teenagers, they get into like fight or flight and like, 
they literally can't access that part of their brain where they have rational like conversations and so um, if they go to their room and they need to cool down like don't follow them in and continue to try to talk to them it's not going to happen um, and so I think like having those conversations and being like okay what are we going to do like whether it's with your kids, whether it's with your partner, like being like, okay, we when we get into a fight, we're gonna both take ten or half an hour or whatever it is that we need and then come back to it later and have a conversation and be like, okay, what happened? What did you experience in that? What was I feeling? What were you feeling? And have that conversation. But it's just not something that's gonna be able to happen in the moment. And so have some strategies of like giving each other grace and space to process before coming back to it. Awesome. And again, I think health, healthy for spouses as well to a apply the same strategy when you're both trying to get your point across arguing yelling not understanding you know before seeking to be understood just having some time and space to just let it settle down I mean, when we spoke you spoke about different parts of the brain that activated in those moments and once we've activated that part and we're operating out of that part the other place has been pushed to the side and it's just not helpful so thank you all of you for sharing your time i wish we could go longer but uh we can't the time is up can we put our hands together and thank our amazing panelists this morning uh, like I said, um, all of the resources that they recommend and websites and things like that, I'll post up on our Facebook group uh, this afternoon so that you can access those. If you don't have Facebook, come and see me. I can maybe put them together in an email for you. That would be awesome.